You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So it is June 18th, 2020. It's 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And this is Meditation and Attachment, uh, Deepening Your Practice. Um, and I thought um, that I would actually change the calendar and do a meta practice for difficult people tonight instead of beginning the conversation around Satipatthana Sutta. Um, I thought maybe we should finish up the cycle, the meta cycle, and then jump into the conversation on Satipatthana Sutta. Um, and then maybe do a few Satipatthanas in a row and then uh, come back to the meta practice. Uh, so that it makes sense. Uh, meta practice for difficult people also might be useful in this particular moment in time. Um, the um, the practice of meta is really intended for all beings, with no one excluded. And then we have a tendency to contract around people that we find difficult. Um, metta is meant to be the antidote to anger and often one of the experiences that we have with difficult people is a sense of anger arising when we think of them and so this can be particularly useful there's a number of reasons why anger might be arising in this particular moment um, in in terms of the pandemic one is the stay-at-home orders are are uh, still limiting our movement um, the routine social experiences that we might have aren't happening um, it can create a sense of isolation a sense of being uh, disregarded or uh, uncared for all of those things can lead to a sense of anger um, but we have a polarized country and the response is a politically, particularly in this run-up to the presidential election in November, can also uh, create a sense of um, anger in response to people's reactions. Um, the abdication of the leadership in the time of the pan pandemic uh, also can do that. So, it, it's interesting, I think, to look at what it is that actually causes you to become angry and then what you can do about that. Um, anger is uh, as a primary experience uh, and then as a secondary experience is also something interesting to explore. Uh, we have this uh, uh, capacity for emotional responses to things. We don't have a universal emotional experience that we all know and is the same for all of us. We all have the experiences which we were conditioned to learn in our family systems. And so everybody's sense of what anger is or sadness or joy varies depending on the early conditioning that you had. Some people uh, 
have an ease and a wide range of feeling states that they can detect and respond uh, to. And some people uh, use a more shut down approach to dealing with emotions. And this is also related to your early attachment conditioning. Um, the infant is born without a knowledge of what emotional states are and they learn that in the relationship with their caregiver so that if you had a responsive caregiver who attended to you and empathetically connected to you and mirrored back their uh, impression of you and then also responded to you, then you tend to have a sense of security in expressions of your emotions and in understanding what they are. And if that didn't happen to you, you have some other variation of that. If you did not have an attentive enough caregiver and they did not uh, empathetically connect to or mirror back to, what, to you what your emotional experience is, you actually may have very little knowledge of that. Um, depending on what emotional regulation strategies they offered you. You may have different versions of how to regulate your experience. But mostly what emotions are is the body's uh, response to the present moment and its processing about what to do next in response to what it is that you experience as happening. And so the patterns of sensation that happen in the body as the body prepares to take an action. Uh, anger is often a rush of blood into the upper tor torso, into the arms, into the face. There's adrenaline, noradrenal that goes with that. Endorphins are added to the system. So uh, endorphins tend to feel pretty good so you can get a, 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 a sense of well-being from uh, maintaining angry states. The brain stem offers the first flash of emotion and that's largely unconscious and you notice after that process has happened that it comes into consciousness and then the secondary response is the prefrontal cortex and the thinking process in response to that. So maybe you notice that if you're startled the mind then flips on a process that generates anger and so if somebody frightens you, this response instead of expressing your fear is expressing anger instead. The reason that we focus on anger in metta practice is because the far enemy of, of kindness is anger. That, that flash, that response of anger. In that kind, open place, often we can touch into the vulnerability that often underlies the anger. Um, but if we are defended against that experience or we don't feel safe, then anger can be a good defense. We know other people and we know ourselves because we generate a working model of them, an, uh, an experience that includes the mind states that we hold with them. Often it includes the, the memory experiences of them. Um, mind and memory work hand in hand. Uh, mind is the sensing experience which uh, um, focuses your attention on the different things uh, and then creating the sequence of uh, mind moments 
that are then used to create the experience of conceptual reality. And memory is part of that. You have the object that can be sensed, the capacity to sense it. When there's contact, a, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which is immediately evaluated for processing speed. If it's urgent, it gets uh, immediate attention. If it's neutral, most of the time, you're never aware of that. And if it's pleasant and there's time, you have the experience of pleasantness. So we're also biased toward a faster processing of an angry response than we are of a, a pleasant response. I think that it's important to understand that these are two different systems, the, the system that focuses on negativity and the system that focuses on positivity, and that you can easily develop a very robust system that focuses on the negative and not attend to the system that um, develops the positive. And so if we were to work with a system of practice that just alleviated the anger aspect, but didn't intentionally develop the positive aspect, while we would have a reduction in the negative affect that comes from that, we wouldn't uh, also at the same time augment the positive aspect of that. So when you talk about a working model of yourself and a working model of someone else, that what's embedded in that are the mind states that you hold. And if you uh, develop a, a, a working model of somebody that's embedded with a lot of negative mind states, or you develop a working model of yourself that's embedded with a lot of negative mind states, when that working model is evoked from memory and it's constructed in the present moment, often we can have an aversive response that's just automatic to the experience of the negative states that are included in the construction of the idea of that person or the idea of yourself. And then uh, actually we become aversive to them, to thinking of them, or we become, uh, become aversive to ourselves and thinking of ourselves. And that simply reducing the uh, reactivity to the negative mind states would not change that much without the intentional embedding in the working model of other people, the capacity for a positive state. One of the things that's interesting to look at this from the, the attachment perspective is that you have your conditioning and other people have their conditioning. And often that the difficulty in relating to the other person is not intrinsic to them or their conditioning, but a uh, inability of your conditioning and their conditioning to mesh well. Um, and uh, this can have a lot of different effects. In particular, uh, one of the effects that can happen is that the experience of the other person is emotionally dysregulating to you. And so when you have the experience of them, it creates a sense of dysregulation in you and your reaction to that experience of de uh, emotional dysregulation is to blame them for the process of your own dysregulation, even though they're not doing anything in particular except being the way that they are based on their conditioning. Uh, we have these uh, working models of self and others and, and this idea of how people should be and what constitutes uh, 
a good and bad version of that, and often it's related to how well our system and the way that our conditioning operates in relationship to theirs. One of the things about this emotional regulation piece, this co-regulation piece, is that so, that it's largely unconscious and automatic, and because it's based on these complex, long experiences of conditioning for each of us, it isn't reasonable really to say that somebody should just alter all of their conditioning so that you are less reactive to the experience of them. It's one of the reasons why we practice in this way so that we have agency in, in controlling the mind state that arises in these experiences and so that we're not simply subject to the conditioned response to things that happen to us, that we can notice and monitor the conditioned response and then have agency in terms of changing our response to them if our experience is afflictive, regardless of what their experience is. And part of this is the embedding of these positive mind states in the working model of other people. In um, experiences of difficult people, often difficult people are also people that are close to us. Uh, it is um, um, of a particular uh, group, maybe family members in particular, there's an enormous amount of conditioning associated with um, uh, family members, and often our instant reaction to family members is, is afflictive um, because of the reactivity of our uh, conditioning to theirs. Often what can also happen in uh, long-term relationships that are closer is that there's an accumulation of disappointment in the way that they have responded to us or uh, disappointment in what we have wanted from them um, and not been able to get from them. So one of the things to pay attention to, of course, in, in relationships is whether the uh, your conditioning and their conditioning match well and that you have a co-regulating experience of them. Um, uh, and that it's mutual because it doesn't have to be. Somebody could be very emotionally regulating for you and you could be interested in forming a relationship or a connection to them and your conditioning could be emotionally dysregulating for them. And it isn't a value judgment of you, it's, a, it's an experience of how the two conditionings come together. So when you're um, moving in the world and establishing relationships, this is something important to pay attention to. Are you, is your experience of them regulating the same or dysregulating, and is their experience the same, uh, neutral or dysregulating? And if you can find a good match of regulating and regulating, then you want to highly value that. But what we're often looking at in the category of difficult person is a mismatch in some way. So that if we find them regulating and enjoyable and we want more of their attention, but they don't find that in us and they don't want to give it to us, that can create a sense of difficulty. Or we um, find them dysregulating and they find us regulating and they want more from us.
one of another aspect of this is that we are very moral creatures as human beings and our uh, design is to exist in uh, complex social groups and we're collaborative in nature uh, this and this is say a fundamental disagreement between um, points of view um, growing up I often heard that Dar Darwin's uh, um, model was survival of the fittest but when I looked into Darwin actually his model was one of collaboration and cooperation that the species who thrive thrive because they they're able to collaborate and uh, or at least um, cooperate with each other and one of the reasons that human beings are so phenomenally successful on the planet is because of the depth of that capacity whereas uh, uh, many other animals don't do that So also that process of creating conceptual reality from what's actually happening. Can you then see the people that you find difficult as they are without you putting the things onto them that you want from them or, and don't get from them or, uh, or the limits that you would like to place on them that, that they don't seem to monitor and see them uh, from that place uh, of equanimity and then also knowing that uh, in seeing them clearly that some of the things you might want you can get and some of the things you can't and some of the qualities that they have are going to be present uh, even if you don't want them to be there then uh, monitor it and manage it in that way when anger arises and uh, distorts the perception of this often what happens is uh, an intention and action is taken which creates a karmic stream, often a negative karmic stream. And in, in that monitoring of people who are close to you, uh, if there's a disappointment or um, an abruption of some kind in the relationship, those outbursts of anger can cause you to make an intention and take an action which is damaging to the relationship, which makes it more difficult. And at a certain point, if, if you let that go uh, without managing it and it gets to a level of contempt and you express it, it becomes next to impossible to repair that uh, breach in, in the relationship because contempt is the uh, expression that other people are morally unfit and it's very difficult for somebody who on the receiving end of that to recover from that uh, and view you as somebody who sees them as morally fit after you've made that expression. Here in the practice of this, uh, if, if you've been on the receiving end of contempt, that intensity of anger, it's very hard for you to recover from that. Um, if you assign meaning to people's actions um, and they're in that category, um, it's very easy for the mind to become distorted by anger and in that distortion of anger, uh, evaluate all of their actions as that or to in some way devalue them.
And really where we want to get to is this place where we can see people the way that they are <coughs> and understand um, as best we can what motivates them. Often in, in the Buddhist way of thinking, we, be, we begin to, to understand that they're suffering beings and that often the distress of their own suffering is the thing that drives them to act in the way that they act. And then to be able to respond to that in a way that's kind, but at the same time does not sacrifice or compromise your own well-being so that you can take a position and you can hold it with kindness almost better than you can hold it with anger. Because anger consumes um, energy in, at a rate that's impossible over the long term to sustain, whereas kindness does not do that. And one of the things I know about the nature of the, the society we live in and where we're at now is we need tremendous resilience to actually affect change and that these eruptions of anger <clears throat> tend to not work very well in that. One of the other things that can happen on a, in a more um, group level is that uh, these small bursts of anger, these limited expressions of anger by small groups of people tend to create an outside reaction, an outsized reaction by uh, uh, people in, in power. You'll notice um, an example of that would be in Myanmar, the, um, the, there was a small group of Rohingya that uh, um, used violence as a means of political resistance to the oppression of the uh, Miramar military and uh, killed uh, a dozen police officers in a, in, a, in a station, police station in, the, in the, the area of Miramar where the Rohingya are in concentration camps. And the result of the Miramar military was then to force 800,000 people over the border they had attempted to do that before, the year before, um, but the Bangladeshi army opened fire on the uh, 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 Rohingya as they were being forced across the border to stop that from happening. And in response to the, the military, the Bangladeshi military firing on the Rohingya, the Miramar military back down and let them return to their villages. In order to be effective in these uh, um, efforts to make society more just, we need to have this resilience and we need to be able to come into this place and I think in a nonviolent way, mostly because uh, disempowered groups uh, don't have the capacity to meet the violence of the groups that are uh, traditionally in power. And, but they do give cover or license for the people in power to react 
in a way that that um, ultimately moves the discourse uh, toward fascism. And we would do better, I think, to come at it from this place of kindness uh, and resilience, which can come from that. The near enemy of meta, of course, is sentimentality. And uh, often what we do in uh, meta practice is generate positive emotional states, which are quite pleasing to us. And uh, one thing that can happen in developing a practice that's based on intentionally generating positive feeling states is that the practice loses the intention uh, of developing the capacity for um, the kind mind state, even in the face of these difficult situations, uh, because we have a, a personal attachment to the positive mind state that arises. Um, sentimentality also would suggest that the nature of the narrative that generates the positive feeling state is the thing that we tend to focus on. And we slip out of the present moment into the thinking process that generates emotion. So if you think of the internal experience as uh, internal auditory, internal visual, and emotion in the body, we, we slip out of awareness of the experience of the present moment into the audio, visual, emotional experience internally and genera, generate a positive feeling state, which we can become attached to, which does not actually help us see clearly what a mind state is, nor give us any uh, particular dexterity in monitoring our mind state and then having agency in uh, changing one mind state, uh, uh, one afflictive mind state with a more beneficial mind state. In Myanmar, the Sado talked about the mind state of metta as this cool place. Um, and often when we're practicing and using narrative to generate it, the, the mind state that produces the positive emotion is not cool. It has a, a flavor to it of desire often or a flavor of uh, of. Uh, righteousness, what feels better than self-righteous anger, in a way. Um, <clears throat> so they say that uh, metta mind has an absence of loba. Loba is the Pali word. One of the things about talking about this, uh, what, particularly when you get into specifics, is that we don't have English words that meet mean these things. But loba is a particular type of anger which refers to the anger that arises when desire is frustrated or uh, uh, not uh, achieved. And so uh, we're paying uh, a particular kind of anger that we're looking at, an anger that's driven by uh, the desire for something that we're unable to get. So craving is one aspect. The heat of craving is absent. And then the heat of the anger that comes from the craving not being satisfied. Uh, craving can uh, be dissatisfying in, in a number of ways. One is you can get the thing that you want, but then it doesn't last and so you lose it. 
I like to say, the first bite of the cake was delicious, but by the time you've eaten the whole cake, that delicious quality of the first bite is long gone, right? Um, you cannot get what you want, which is that, that frustration of anger. You can have things that you don't want. That's the other aspect of craving that creates that sense of anger. And then there's that subtle irritation that nothing is exactly the way that you would have it if you wanted it, uh, if you were in charge of it and you could make things the way that you wanted them. And so with this uh, idea of metta mind or loving kindness is a popular uh, way of uh, parsing it, uh, love often has a, the heat of desire in it. So kindness um, can often be perceived as kind of flat, and metta mind is an is an intentional inclination toward something, which is why I like the the word curiosity uh, in associating this, because there's a kind of inclination to be open and exploring in that. So kind, loving, open-hearted, non-judgmental uh, curiosity is, a, is the way that I tend to experience metta mind. And when you bring that even to difficult people, that open-hearted, kind uh, curiosity the things that they do that you find so irritating suddenly become uh, uh, an experience of uh, of exploration and and an, an attempt to understand why it is that their experience is that um, so i uh, there's a note in the chat the phrase that the sado uses is may you be peaceful um, there's a few reasons why the phrase is, is concise like that. Because uh, we're attempting to come into a high concentration state on the object of meditation, using a phrase that's longer or more complex requires that you divide the attention between the recitation of the phrase and, um, and the object of meditation, which is the mind state. Um, and that can allow you to slip into sentimentality rather than being predominantly focused on the one thing. Um, peaceful is uh, the, the concept that uh, often the thing that causes people to be difficult is the, that they are not peaceful. Um, and so wishing them to be peaceful and centered um, opens up the possibility that the behavior that is uh, causing suffering, uh, both your own and theirs, will fall away. Um, if you use peaceful as an investigation for your curiosity, you can um, you'll need to understand what state the other person is in and uh, whether or not peace is present or not and what kind of uh, reactivity that they have in, in relationship to a state that isn't peaceful 
and then in them coming into peace, uh, noticing how that changes. When uh, you may be familiar with a, a series of different kinds of phrases that people use. When I first started to do the practice, um, it was through uh, Sharon Salzberg's book, uh, um, the title of which is, I think, The Art, Art of Loving Kindness, some, something along those lines. And um, there were four phrases that uh, she recommended. Let's see, I can't think of them at the moment. I haven't used them in a while. Um, may you be free from suffering was one of them. Um, may you be peaceful. May you be at peace. What we would do is listen to the Sayadaw, try to parse these questions. May you have uh, good health was one of them that came up quite a bit. May you be healthy, maybe you have good health. Uh, somebody would say, well, I don't have good health. How am I supposed to do my metta practice? Um, and so what that is really pointing to is the idea that you're getting caught up in the language of it caught up in the meaning of the languages and maybe coming out of the present moment and the, the experience of concentrating on the mind state and uh, slipping into sentimentality where it's the meaning of the phrases that actually is generating the positive feeling state rather than noticing what the mind state is. Um, so the phrase in some sense is generic and, and the, the need to, to pay attention to what exactly it is, the meaning of it is less important than it inclines the mind toward the mind state of loving kindness or uh, that, that thing, that, that experience that is the mind state of metta and that it reminds you of that so that if you do get pulled into thinking and come out of it, you can uh, be reminded by the phrase to go back into the object of meditation. Or sometimes when you do come into a high concentration um, state the um, and you pop out of it, it can be a little bit disorienting and the phrase reminds you of that. Is that good enough, Arthur? Do you need more? We'll see. I guess uh, my experience is when I say, uh, may you be peaceful, uh, I guess to me it kind of um, is wishing whatever is happening to them to subside. Uh -huh. And it sort of becomes uh, the opposite of curiosity. It feels like it's like I'm no longer getting curious about what's happening. Oh, you're. Like kind of you're directing. Oh yes. So you're directing them to be a particular way and not open and accepting to the way that they are and exploring that. Yes. Um, you know, you're free to use whatever phrase you want, or to change the definition of that phrase simply to mean, um, 
are you in metta mind which is always cool um, the conciseness is important too so how can you shorten it so that it, that you don't really need to spend much attention on the, the repetition of the phrases um, so use whatever works well without becoming uh, attached to the the language itself any questions about all of this so far is it making sense sometimes with difficult people the anger is so immediate and so intense that you can't work with them uh, and in, that is to say you can't succeed in inclining the mind toward kindness when you're uh, focusing on them so when that happens you have two choices one is you can switch and work with somebody else and attempt to develop the meta mind so that you have enough agency that you can really hold the meta mind with anyone where I would like you to get is where you can hold metta mind and consider anybody and, and not have the, the mind state itself displaced. The second thing you can consider doing is shifting into forgiveness practice. Um, in um, Asia, that there was pretty much no awareness at all of forgiveness practice. It's an American practice it was probably developed at Spirit Rock um, in the 70s and uh, it's a it's a um, reflection of the way Western culture holds the individual in some sense in contrast to how the Eastern approach to holding the individual is in the East uh, um, so don't get mad at me um, by interpreting what I'm going to say as a declarative that's always true. Um, I'm talking about groups here, not individuals, so there's going to be a million examples of why this isn't true. But if we're just talking broadly group to group, in Asia, the center is the family. Um, and so uh, part of the training for children is to imagine yourself as part of a family group. In the West, we're very individualistically oriented. You don't necessarily identify primarily with your family and you don't regard um, your behavior as necessarily reflecting uh, positively or negatively on your family system. And so we can easily see ourselves as separate in the West in a way that uh, uh, isn't the same in uh, Asia where these practices uh, originated. And so there's no need really to have a forgiveness practice culturally that's culturally relevant in Asia, whereas here often we can see ourselves as separate. And so uh, it's better uh, for us to have this way of inclining the mind um, toward the possibility of kindness, possibility of group membership. Forgive me, I forgive you, I forgive myself are the short form phrases of the forgiveness phrases. 
uh, we tend to have the sense of the loner self, which can easily take on more responsibility than is warranted in a situation. Um, we can take on the responsibility, the blame, and so forgive me becomes important as a phrase. We, of course, can have responsibility for the actions that we take, but often we, we take on responsibilities for things that aren't ours to hold. I forgive you. This, th that same capacity to take on too much responsibility can mean that we can project it and blame other people for it. I forgive you. Or sometimes people do act in a way that forgiving them uh, is useful. And then uh, I forgive myself is the third one. Uh, I forgive myself versus forgive me are, are, are two different ways that in which we can experience self as it arises. Um, I forgive myself is coming from a perception of the self that's almost outside, where forgive me is coming from in the center of the identification of it. So that can be a useful thing. You can use any one of the phrases or you can cycle between the phrases. But if you find that anger is arising in, in selecting the difficult person that you're working with and you can't manage it, shift into practicing for somebody who you can or move out of uh, in trying to incline the mind toward kindness in regards to that person and try to move into a place of forgiving uh, whoever you've assigned the blame to. In forgiveness practice, we're not looking for an objective uh, evaluation of the situation and assigning in a, an objective sense what the responsibilities are. We're just looking at the way that you hold the experience. Is that making sense? So any questions um, before we begin the practice? The, uh, the energy of the PT is easier to focus on than, than understanding what the view is. And so when it, that happens, you just shift to the energy of it from the view of it. In Vipassana jhana practice, the shift is from uh, whatever it is that you're using as the object of meditation to the PT. So in metta-jhana, it's very similar to that shift. Uh, and then you're, uh, most people experience the mindset somewhat up here because it's about view, right? So visual and auditory create help create the view. And then it energizes and you have this uh, physical sensation that becomes the object of meditation. And then, uh, depending on how deep the concentration becomes, the in intensity of the bliss arises in the body. So you have this very pleasant experience of being one-pointed on a small object. And then, as you notice the flow, you know, you're not doing anything to cause the flow, but the flow of... of um, conceptual reality from that, just that process you begin to notice is infused with this uh, kindness. 
which makes everything change in terms of how you view it. Um, you can, there's a comment about videos or um, about Uundika uh, Sadao's uh, talks and stuff. Um, he doesn't really speak English, and so they're all in, in uh, Mirma. And then he has various uh, translators depending on the quality of it. The Metta, um, the Metta Jhana manual that he wrote uh, was translated into English, and I have posted it uh, on Patreon. Um, if you're part of the Patreon community, it'll be uh, available there. But you could also just Google uh, Indica Meta, and the document will come up in a Google search, and it's a downloadable PDF. I haven't seen any YouTube videos of, of his that I would recommend, um, mostly because uh, <clears throat> the quality of the translations aren't great. Indica is I-N-D-A-K-A. So U is a, an honorific, like Mr., except if you're a monk. And then Sadao is like PhD. Uh, it, it indicates a level of education. Uh, it would be like uh, uh, at the end, usually. U Indica Sadao is... Um, one of the things about Buddhist monks is in, in Southeast uh, Asia, but in, Bur in Myanmar in particular, is they carry a fan that has all of the information about their position in the hierarchy. And so some will just carry a fan which has no information on it, which means that they're lower down. But the higher up they go, the more information is on the fan so that everybody can read it and know what their position is. Um, Everybody good? So thank you for coming. The, the uh, Saturday I'm beginning a series of six day longs that will be once a month on the on Mahasi Sayadaw's Progress of Insight. And we'll be going through the different stages and doing practice, a period of practice. I'll talk about what the practice was meant to um, elucidate and then we'll practice again. We'll go through the first three stages on, on Saturday. Um, this class is repeating, uh, and next week we'll start on the uh, Satipatthana Sutta. Um, I have the beginner's class on Tuesday. We are doing a virtual retreat coming up in July. It's a five-day retreat if you want to register. It starts on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Um, I have only interview spaces for the first 20 people who register and after that you can join the retreat but not have interviews. So if you're considering doing that and would like to have interviews then uh, it's better to sign up earlier. Um, this class and the other classes are offered on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity so I offer the teaching of the class and then uh, hopefully you'll make a donation to support me and Metagroup and the work that we're doing. You can make a donation by going to the Metagroup website and clicking on the link that's associated with this class. 
any amount is appreciated. Uh, uh, you are also appreciated for come and doing, uh, coming and doing this work, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. John, yeah? Saturday, Saturday, is this, uh, I didn't see in the archives, it's a new series of day-longs. A new series of day-longs, okay. which is uh, called The Progress of Insight. I'm going to go through all 16 stages over the course of six months, uh, and Saturday is the first one. Yes. Okay. And we should be doing a blast, I would think, tomorrow. All right. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you, George. Thanks. Bye. Bye.